Welcome to Legal Tech Week for April 16th, 2021. Uh, I am Bob Ambrogi, I'm the host, and uh, we are actually even able to tell you a little bit of advance some of the stories we're going to talk about today because we've we're so organized this week. And uh, among them, we're going to talk about an ORIC uh, spinoff uh, for corporate legal departments, judicial analytics in New York, uh, the uh, fair use SCOTUS opinion, uh, and and any more any number of other ones here. Uh, but before we get to all of those, let's introduce ourselves here. Um, so, uh, Caroline, you've been away for a while. You missed our whole virtual world version of, uh, of this, but uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm so sad. Yeah, that's it. It's, I'm coming to the end of spring break. Thank goodness. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been away for a couple of weeks and I missed the avatar. But I'm Caroline Hill, editor in chief of Legal IT Insider, recovering litigator, but that was a very long time ago, uh, based in the UK, but our publication is global. Thank you very much. And Joe Patrice. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and <clears throat> the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. And uh, I was here last week for the Avatar thing, and I also was running another event involving avatars, and so I got to compare different uh, different styles. So now I'm kind of in the uh, I'm joining Nikki in the Avatar game. I feel like I I can truly say I support the idea. Uh, Zach, hey everybody, I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor in chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. Slightly dismayed that I can't do backflips here or like the. Gangnam style dance at the drop of a hat, but it, we'll see what I come up with by the end of the hour. Sounds good, Victoria. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria. I am a reporter with Legal Tech News, and you'll also find my byline on law.com, the American Lawyer Corporate, uh, Corporate Council, where I cover legal tech and how lawyers use technology. Molly McDonough. Hi, I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist based in the Chicago area. I blog at uh, Just Society and am a producer for the Legal Talk Network show, Legal Talk Today. And straight from TikTok, Nikki Black. <laughs> My name is Nikki Black. I am uh, the legal technology evangelist with My Case Law Practice Management Software. I also write legal tech posts or articles for um, ABA Journal Above the Law, The Daily Record, and the My Case blog. And I think um, the, the, my favorite part about being an avatar was doing the backflips because I am well past the stage of life where I can do backflips in real life, let alone in heels. So I was, you know, reliving my youth, perhaps. I don't know. I don't really I don't recall doing those, but I'm sure I did at some point. In so. <laughs> uh, commuting with nature, I guess, Steve Embry. Yeah, battling battling rotten, crummy Wi-Fi and poor lighting. Um, although I, I am in the car and I'm not driving, so that's one good thing. I'm Steve Embry. I uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads uh, about legal innovation, legal technology. Uh, I am also the vice chair of the American Bar Association Law Practice Division. You have a lot of trees in your backseat. <laughs> yeah, they, they sprout up like weeds, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was everybody's takeaway? I mean, a few people commented. Any other takeaways on on our virtual version last week? I I, I thought it was fun. I thought it kind of inhibited the conversation a little bit because I think we were also clumsy and awkward uh, trying to figure out uh, who was saying what and what was happening. But 
you know, I thought it was kind of neat when we all sort of left the conference room and, you know, kind of walked around and, and, and went to the exhibit hall. You know, that was kind of a, an interesting unplanned, I, I guess it was unplanned, uh, sort of sort of thing to do. And yeah. that, that holds some possibilities for how we might do it in the future and what kind of topics we might do and, you know, whether we could, we could visit and, and chat with vendors or, or, or things like that. So I thought it was, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I hope we see more of them. Yeah. I should and say that for anybody who missed it, uh, it was recorded for posterity. Go to our YouTube channel. You can go to Legal Tech Week on YouTube and uh, see the uh, entire virtual presentation of our roundtable last week as we stumbled around uh, in the virtual world. Um, I, I would say kudos to, to Nikki convincing the Bar Association to do it and, and kudos to the Bar Association that that was brave enough to try something like that. That's more than a lot of organizations have done. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm how, did, how did that part of it go, Nikki? How did it go yeah. with your bar association? Well, you know, I feel like they're used to me since I've literally been writing about <laughs> tech since 2008, screaming from the rooftops. And they've always been like, what is that crazy woman over there talking about today? And so they're used to it. And, um, but I was able to convince them and I was really happy that they were receptive to it. And I was really proud of the attorneys that attended because there were some attorneys there that were um, seasoned attorneys for lack of a better word. Like they were my um, like mentors and they were like the seasoned lawyers when I started practicing back in 95. So there were some lawyers that have been practicing a long time that were close to retirement that are not super tech forward or interested in tech. And I was just so proud that enough of them were willing to just give a chance and they were there and they had their little avatars running around. And um, I was just really proud. And I, I'm, I'm glad that they were, maybe they're just sick of resisting my, you know, evangelism. <laughs> I have, I've, uh, what's the word? Um, over the years, I've worked them down is not the word. There's an expression, I can't get it, but you know what I'm saying. Broken them down. Broken them down, that's it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Beaten them down, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. I um, It was a lot of fun. I spent too much time just kind of playing around with what I could see. And so when I went and looked at it again, I look really shifty. Um, besides kind of accidentally getting up and leaving my seat so many times, I just wasn't, I, the way the view looked, I wasn't looking at Bob for a lot of it. So it looked like I wasn't paying attention or I was just really enthralled with Steve. Um, so. <laughs> All of which could be true. All right. Um, well, I feel like how can we not start with a story that combines monkeys, pong, and implants? <laughs> All right. Well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be um, Yeah. So uh, it's not. I. It's a not thoroughly a legal tech story, although it clearly is a legal tech story for regulation and and. Uh, um, and what's to come with uh, technology and, and human implants of technology. But uh, Elon Musk is saying that his Neuralink, the brain chip, uh, which was successfully implanted in a, in a monkey who can play Pong without touching anything, um, will be ready for humans uh, in 2021. So uh, look for big battles over uh, what that means for um, human capacity and AI with uh, brain chips. Uh, there are lots of positive things can happen with, with um, these brain chips. 
Um, they're focused on um, working on solutions to blindness, um, uh, Alzheimer's, lots of different ways they're expecting the, the technology to be able to be used. Um, I don't know if you want to just talk about this part right now, or if I should go to the next story, which is yeah, probably kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so oh, yeah, the, in the meantime, states are preemptively uh, passing legislation. Indiana was the 11th, I think, to, um, to pass legislation recently that bars employers from forcing employees to um, implant devices. Um, and this can be everything from these brain chips to um, those little, the little pieces that go into your fingers that let you um, um, walk into your secure biometric uh, bio, security. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess they're not biometric if they're implants. They're not biometric. The biometric are fingerprint, but these are device activated right. um, and have data attached to the to them. So yeah. So like you don't have to carry around your key card anymore. You can just point. <laughs> somebody, we, we've, somebody. we've all got Bill Gates chips implanted now anyway. So what do we care about another one? That's what I was going to say. Somebody, somebody needs to tell Mr. Musk that's already happening. Quit working. <laughs> I mean, is there any, I mean, does this mean if, if it's implanted in humans, what does it mean? I mean, does it mean we're all going to be playing pong without uh, having to use our hands or does it, is there something more we can do here? Well, I can't I even mean, find for, pong anymore, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Neur Neuralink is really, I mean, his, the focus there is, uh, for to, well to advance human capacity, but the medical uses are are expansive. The potential medical impact for um, what the research is is working on in terms of um, um, enhancing um, for for like the blindness, creating the bionic eye that would um, hook up to a computer. That's a that's one of the implications. Um, Elon Musk keeps talking about Alzheimer's and um, brain triggers. Um, to help with uh, memory and dementia. So, you know, lots of potential interesting implications besides making um, Steve Austin uh, out of all of us. The thing I thought when I read that though was, I'll believe it when I actually see a human playing Pong. I mean, who knows what the monkey was doing? Like this idea that we're supposed to believe that the monkey understands what Pong is and is playing Pong through a neural link in his brain. Like the monkey pro was probably just, who knows? Like maybe the monkey didn't even realize that the neural link had anything to do with what was on the screen. So that was a difficult, difficult uh, uh, leap for me. But if once it's in a human and they they say that they're doing that, I'll believe them. I suppose. But I don't. I'm not buying the monkey thing yet. We'll see. They were they were rewarding it with banana smoothies. They've gone <laughs> like just excited about banana smoothies with the um. The, with the chip, you know, with the Indiana pro pro prohibiting employees, I mean, it's just incredible that we're seeing that kind of decision even being contemplated. But then, and, and I actually got sent, um, I was offered an article saying, did I want um, something talking about employers on the, the regulations surrounding employers monitoring um, GPS, their employers GPS. And, and I mean, it's just, uh, it's just uh, obviously COVID is going to create so many of these complexities, but there was someone, someone was saying, well, actually, we carry our phones around everywhere with us, right? And, and, and there are so many sort of different layers. Like you've got, <laughs> you could be monitored with your phone at any time of day, like whether it's inbuilt into you. So I think that these, these sort of, this very invasive device um, type decision is quite shocking. 
But then if you think about the different ways that we're being monitored anyway, I mean, obviously it doesn't take it to such extremes, but I think when we get, when we react with such shock at the, the, the infringement of our civil liberties, I think we need to look at what's actually going on anyway. So I think, and I think that that's true, Caroline, and when you look at, read more in labor and employment law, there already is an enormous amount of monitoring with devices, with GPS on vehicles. Uh, I, you know, I've spoken to uh, contractors who monitor their subcontractors. I mean, you, you, you get your ticket. I get little alerts now from Amazon saying that my delivery is 10 stops away. You know, they're, they know exactly where everybody is all the time. The difference for me is you can turn off a phone or leave your vehicle somewhere. If it's implanted in you, you don't have any control over that. And the potential for hacking is obviously a, a major issue. Yeah, that, that was going to be the main concern for me too, especially when you look at stuff like what Illinois passed with the Illinois uh, BIPA, the biometrics law. I would think this would be somewhat of an extension of that, that lawmakers should be looking at right now, because it is a completely new air area that a lot of times previously biometrics, of course, HIPAA, uh, medical regulations have existed in the past, but the data that can be extracted now, especially when you have a literal piece of technology that is supposedly implanted in your brain, um, there is a reason to be forward-looking about something like that and wanting to get ahead of the privacy implications right now. Yeah. That kind of poses some interesting criminal law questions too. So like, you know, we have the insanity defense and so maybe we'll have the, I've been hacked, I was hacked <laughs> <laughs> or the chip malfunction defense or what have you. But it, it sounds kind of funny to say it, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, on a more mundane level, how do people feel about having to uh, carry around or the potential for having to carry around vaccination passports or, or apps or I whatever? I've got mine, the you got like version that New York has. Yeah, yep, me too. And what do you do with it? So far, nothing. Uh, <laughs> Same here, seems, right? <laughs> it, it, I, I don't want to say anything about the administration that we have here in New York, but it seems like it was a half-baked idea that no one actually put any resources <laughs> behind. But uh, yeah, it, it's a good thing, but they all they managed to do is you can go to watch Knicks games with it. And I, all I can think is nobody's wanted to watch a Knicks game in years anyway. So <laughs> I think, yeah. Oh, Joe, what would we do without you? <laughs> Why, where's Joe going? Nothing. What do you know that we don't know? <laughs> no, he's just so, he always like, I love your delivery. You're so funny. You make like the Thanks. most simple concept funny. <laughs> We'll miss you, Joe. <laughs> I don't know where. <laughs> what do you know about the vaccine? I was waiting for Joe to respond to Nikki as, you think I'm funny? You think I'm funny? <laughs> <laughs> A whole go all good fellas. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else do we have this week? Um, Caroline, since you haven't had been around for a few weeks, uh, give you uh Give you a chance to uh, talk about something. Well, you've been <laughs> off celebrating Easter for it's ever. been two weeks. <laughs> so, so I was. So mine's not monkey pong. It's very legal tech actually. So there were two things, um, and I wasn't sure which one to talk about. So the Latera's made another acquisition, and I was just thinking about talking about what that means. But then also, 
um, I host, I helped to host Oracle to host uh, the launch of their their uh, new global practice management system uh, last night, which is also quite interesting. Um, Bob, do you have a preference for which I talk about? Whatever you like. Well, let's talk about Oracle because I hosted it last night. Yeah, that um, sounds interesting. Yeah, so they they've re. <laughs> It's a, it's a launch, re, relaunch, re, relaunch, because they, in 2019, they came to market with their global practice management system with PwC. Um, that was a kind of based, obviously, very, very much Oracle based with very little legal tailoring at the time, which, as we know, it must have the right, the right billing um, you know, capability, etc., um, PwC, it has it clearly hasn't worked. So they've not they've not they didn't really make any progress. Um, yeah. Comments are asking if you could move your mic a little closer to your mouth or not. It's, oh, it's sounding a little hollowish for, for some reason. No. Oh, I don't mean I'm probably not set up because I've been on Easter holidays. Oh, okay, that's okay. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get the mic. Can you hear me roughly? No, like, we can hear you. Yeah, a little bit I'm echoey, sure which, a little bit tin canny. I should have done a sound check. Um, I don't actually know what my command. Sorry. Um, so they, um, they, they. So they, the, the PwC offering clearly um, didn't didn't work. I think partly because of the lack of legal tailoring in terms of you know the, the layering, etc. So they've now they're now working with Frontera, um, who have spent the last eight months. Um, Jake Lullabert, who was has been at Elite, he's been at Intap, he's been at Fulcrum, is working with Frontera. Um, to create the various requirements that, that make it a practice management system that's appropriate for the legal industry. Um, and they just came to market formally last night. Um, and they, the, the fact that Frontera's involved makes it more affordable. So PwC meant that it was very much for the largest firms, um, very pr pretty, pretty expensive. Whereas this offering that they're currently coming to market with, they say can be any, anything from 75 attorney firms and upwards. Um, so it's very much more scalable. Um, and we did, we had a demo last night, which was quite brief. So it's hard to really comment in terms of the functionality and, you know, but they seem to have done, you know, it looks good. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how they go with it and whether, you know, it's good in that, that market, as we know, needs some competition. So it's a bit lackluster. It's a glad, it's a cloud system at a time when, when a lot of law firms are still nervous about moving their practice management system to the cloud, but there's obviously been a big shift um, in cloud appetite over the last year. So it'd be really interesting to see how they go with it. Yeah. Did you write about it yet? or? Uh, I wrote, I wrote, yeah, I, wrote, I did. I wrote, oh yeah, I'll post this, sorry. Um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote an early piece. Um, I need to write, I it was like pre-demo, pre-hosting pre this thing last night. So I'll write a fuller piece uh, next week, but yeah, I'll post the, the sort of, you know, the sort of, introductory piece that I wrote yes, uh, yesterday, I think it was. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. It, it looks good. Um, but as we know, <laughs> these things live and die on the detail and, you know, and they've, they've got to have it. But a lot of it is just yeah. straight Oracle, rather than layering it like Fulcrum or other ERPs, they've actually used a lot of the Oracle native functionality, which is great because it means they can update it um but it's whether they've got it right and firms are obviously going to be wanting to look very closely um, um but but i do think you know i do think their timing is good in terms of you know um but i, I don't know does anyone else have you heard about much about it bob or I no i haven't heard anything about it yeah it's um yeah so it's gonna it's gonna be interesting i, I sort of wish them luck it's it's what so clifford chance uses has got an early oracle system which was cut sort of customized thousand years ago 
Um, so we, when Oracle first came to market, we kind of thought that it might be a kind of attempt to get Clifford Chance off that. <laughs> um, and I know, you know, it'd be interesting to see. I think this is still probably going to appeal to a lot of the bigger firms, to be honest with you, but it'd be interesting to see. Yeah. Uh, anybody have any thoughts on that or comments or? Uh, I mean, my only comment is just, I find it interesting and probably the right way to go, specifically having something that is tailored to the legal market. Like I find it so interesting, particularly as a lot of people in law firms say, we want enterprise tech, we want technology that works as easy as possible the way that you get like Google or Salesforce or some of these larger enterprise tech out there. But then when the rubber hits the road and attorneys actually try using it, they say, oh, well, okay, this doesn't do X, Y, Z that we clearly need in a law firm and something like practice management, I think would definitely fall within that particular purview of we want something that is as tailored to legal as possible. So it makes sense that they went down that route. To they, I mean, there's certain things they have to have, right? But sort of legally and also because of the way they do the billable hour and, and alternative fees and all of that kind of stuff. And actually the billing stuff is what's caused the likes of Baker McKenzie to lose shed loads of money and then there's been other firms where they couldn't issue a bill you know so in the billing bit is what they have to have right you know they have to get it right because otherwise it causes huge loss you know when they can't bill so they have to have that firms are going to that'll be the thing that firms are going to be looking at most closely I think yeah what was that adjective you just used shedlers did I hear that right me shedlers of money what oh, was that? I just... <laughs> is that a what is that? Really that what I... My language is deteriorating. Yeah, I probably said shitloads. It's a it's a shitloads. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, is that um, a British term? Shitloads? It's the UK version of. Uh... <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why. Out for swearing. That's not what I heard. <laughs> for anybody who, uh, for anybody from the podcast universe, the reason we don't have an explicit tag. It's because we've always been pawning them off as Britishisms. <laughs> we've been duping you this whole time. I just oh my God. Off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a highly technical. <laughs> 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 Sorry, the language is deteriorating. Oh, no, I, yeah. I thought it was actually like an interesting British word I'd never heard. Yeah. Really yeah. not. <laughs> They'll probably be using it at the uh, at the funeral this weekend or, or something. What, whatever. Uh, I mean, well, yeah. No, I, I, although, although, like, is it uh, you know, and a, a shit ton though is spelled with an two n's and an e over there. I think that's an important <laughs> distinction that you need. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, since Oracle sounds a little like Oric, I'll. I'll use that as a segue to the story I was going to talk about this week because uh, I'm not seeing any other good segues here. But uh, I wrote this week about this, uh, how uh, Oric, the law firm, uh, spun off this uh, company, Joinder, uh, and the Joinder launched its product that it's been working on. It's, it's been actually kind of working on this uh, product for a while, uh, and it was working on it as part of Oric Labs. Uh, and uh, now Oric has kind of officially uh, spun off Joinder as a separate company, and they've rolled out the product. And I think the, uh, apart from just the interesting part about all of that, about this being developed through Oric Labs and then spinning off as a separate company, I actually think the product is really interesting. I mean, essentially, it's a 
a, a, I mean, they're calling it a system of record for corporate legal departments for, for corporate legal departments to kind of manage all of their legal work, uh, whether it's uh, transactional or you know compliance work or litigation work or legal ops work or, or whatever else through a single platform. Uh, and you know, I, I think that's I think it's a real problem. I mean, I've never worked in a corporate legal department, but you know, from what I uh, from people I talk to all the time, you know, one of the big problems with corporate legal departments is simply this issue of you're working with lots of different law firms and lots of different outside vendors and those law firms and vendors have traditionally kind of called the shots in terms of uh, what, what systems you're using, how information gets shared, how documents get shared, how they get managed and calendared and all of that. Uh, and so the real idea of this is to basically provide a platform in which uh, corporate legal departments can take control of all of this legal work, all of this information uh, that's going on through all of their firms and vendors and internally. Uh, and manage it. Um, I've only seen a, a, a little bit of it. I, I haven't really gotten into it in any uh, deep way, but it, it looks pretty good. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's kind of, it's one of those things where uh, kind of surprised that somebody hasn't done this earlier. I've seen, I've seen attempts to do this like in the e-discovery space where they've tried to create products for legal departments to manage all of their e-discovery among different law firms in different cases and everything through a single vendor. But this goes beyond uh, even that. So I know, Zach, I know you guys wrote about it too. I don't know if you... Yeah, uh, I think Frank Reddy wrote about this one for us. And the only yeah. thing I'd add, particularly from the business standpoint of how they did this, is they specifically did want to spin this off, not have it as a subsidiary, not sell it through the law firm. And one thing that I think was interesting that they told Frank is not only the business of it, but actually attracting development talent and other talent to the company. Um, one of the co-founders was the head of the, an attorney, head of the technology practice at DLA, or not DLA Piper, Auric, um, who is now leaving to actually run this company. And he said, you know, if we were part of a law firm, we probably wouldn't be able to get the type of talent that we're going to get as a standalone company. It's a lot easier to say, we're a startup we're on our own. We're trying to do something innovative and start this market that Bob just talked about versus come work for a law firm where you have all this red tape and you're going to be associated with the law firm in that way. A lot of like engineers and particularly people in Silicon Valley where Auric is located may not want to do that as much. Um, so a different way of thinking about legal tech development in that way. Yeah, and not only that, but it's, you know, trying to, when you're part of the law firm and you, you're trying to attract talent that is in engineering or coding or anything like that, you, you have an inherent problem and you, you can't offer any ownership in the firm. So, you, you know, you're basically going to say you get a salary as long as you work here and that's it. And part of the attraction of many startups is well, you know, we can't afford to pay you a whole lot now, but here's some stock options. <laughs> so that's that's a, another reason I think, you know, to to, to look at uh, having business people have ownership stakes in law firms, and that was the that was the uh, the article that I cited. It's kind of a, we've talked about it before, but there was a great quote from uh, Daniel Wild at Lawyer on Call, which is the the uh, 
I guess you call it a law firm. It's got, it's owned by people that aren't all lawyers, but I thought it was really insightful what he said. He said, I've worked for 14 years in private practice and now I get to be an attorney. I don't have to do marketing. I don't have to worry about billing and collections. I don't have to go and find my own clients. I get to just do legal work. And you know, it's, I was thinking about that and you, see, you know, the legal market is one of the few marketplaces where you know, the, the person that, that designs the product, the person that makes the product, the person that sells the product, the person that prices the product, and the person that takes care of all the internal accounting is the person that makes the product, right? <laughs> That's it. I mean, you know, it's, it's the lawyer and it's, I don't know of any other business quite like that. And I think a lot of it lays at the feet of this, this ownership, these ownership rules that at least in the United States, we've been saddled with for as long as we well, maybe not as long as we've been practicing, but certainly for a very long time. Yeah, although in fairness, I mean, in lar certainly larger firms are are bringing in professionals who do all of those different uh, parts of it. Uh, they're bringing in pricing professionals and financial professionals, and you know all of those other other parts of it. So uh, you know, if 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 the firm has the financial wherewithal to uh, be hiring those those. Uh, those kinds of people, then, you know, the lawyers are still free to practice law and not have to worry yeah, about all that stuff. I guess that's true, Bob, but, but the practical limitation is, um, you know, the, the clout and stature that those people have in many law firms. And, and it, you know, it's understandable, you know, it's, I mean, if I'm a partner in a law firm, I have liability as a partner, you know, I, my income depends upon the partnership decisions. And if you if you have a, somebody come in without an ownership stake who doesn't have the same risk and and maybe not the same interest level, you know, I'm, I'm looking at those people a little differently than I look at my partners who, you know, if, if, if everything goes to, I'll use a British term here, if everything goes to shit, <laughs> we're all in it together, right? Whereas the, the person without an ownership interest is free to say, well, boy, that was too bad. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I definitely think kind of like you hear about the caste system in law firms is if you're not a lawyer, your opinion doesn't really matter. And I think like for technologists and people that want to design and really create something useful and profitable in the legal space, they'll maybe say there's only so much I can do on a law firm and maybe they'll just take it to legal tech. So it kind of makes sense with Oric. Like, I don't know if they were necessarily thinking, oh, there's only so far you can go with um, attached to a law firm. But in that space, I think kind of like the creativity and the entrepreneurship is you're kind of capped at how much you can do in a law firm. So makes sense. My question. Um, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, um, sorry. So, so how much? So I'm not as familiar with Georgia as you are, Bob, or, or, or probably most people. But, but um, my, my question is about so teams like Microsoft. It seems to me with these kind of systems, you know, that you're you're placing yourself in competition to a large extent with Microsoft. With with with, and I, I don't know how much you you think that there's an overlap with teams. That obviously teams is being used. To corporate legal teams are far far further ahead than law firms and using teams. And it seems to me from reading about what 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 Joinder can do that there's a great overlap. And actually competing with Microsoft is never a great idea. Well, no, it definitely see. I mean, it definitely looks like a mashup of you know Teams and I don't know Net Documents and uh, Slack and you know a, a bunch of things that are out there. But it's it's it looks like an elegant mashup of it all, and uh, and and you know more more uh, purpose built for the for a specific application. So uh, I, I I do think 
certainly uh, the argument could be made that a lot of what they're trying to do on that level could be could be done on teams or, or something like that but uh, which is um, part of your 365 stack you know when you, when you think about what, what you can do now within in the cloud with, and it's like um, you can do all the stuff about potentially DMS like Canada management task management I'm reading your thing Bob and it does and teams is across the whole you know I don't know I just have, I find it I mean I'm not being poo-pooing it or, or discouraging but I just I just think it's really interesting I think that law firms as a general observation when they're when I, I agree with you know I, I like the idea of the entrepreneurship and the giving people you know these types, types of roles but I do really think that law firms have to be careful about where they're competing with Microsoft um if unless they're very strong now now it's now you know firms move into the cloud it's part of 365 mm -hmm. I think firms generally have to be really careful about that personally mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure that Microsoft is interested in competing with its customers. So I, that's a, there, there, there's a little bit of a distinction depending on how big the market goes with that though. So I, I'm, I, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm not. I think it's a natural where they're, where they're coming up with products that are, for example, overlap heavily with teams. It's not that they're trying to compete necessarily with law firms, but just that by necessity, corporate legal teams are using Teams, and it comes as part of their Microsoft stack. So it's, it's just as a general observation as to whether, you know, I do think that, and I do think Teams is doing some that you can do some really cool stuff, um, and that does seem to be they're investing billions in it. It's just as a general observation that I think that you know law firms when they're looking at what they're going to come to market with, I think the, the risk uh, overlapping with Microsoft is always risky, I think, personally, right now, they're investing so much, and they are now obviously interested right. in the legal space again. I've been asking this question a lot about Microsoft, too, because I, I, I've been wondering why Microsoft hasn't been a bigger player in this business, and the answer I've been getting is that they don't want to compete with their customers, but what if their customers start competing with them? then will that dynamic change? I mean, Microsoft could come in and just trounce a lot of these companies or buy them up or, you know, or, you know, whatever and change the dynamic. Well, I mean, you go. Oh, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say um, that Microsoft, obviously, they we've been speaking a lot to people like John Kefalukas. They're doing a lot of work with Microsoft for legal now. They've got Office 365 for legal and they're very much interested and their, their key objective is to get law firms to be quicker to adopt teams. So they're, they're very much interested again. I think, you know, we could argue that this, we've seen this happen before and that Microsoft has been, if you're listening, John, I love you, <laughs> but they can be very flaky as far as the legal sector is concerned. But right now, I think they see huge potential. Um, but just by necessity, I think that with this type of thing, it's good, there's going to be competition. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, oh, go ahead, go, go, Zach. Oh, I was just going to say, when I've talked to people in the past about this thing too, because Microsoft's name has been floated out there for M&A for a few times as well. And I think ultimately it's just come down to the dollar signs. Legal in itself, legal technology in particular, just doesn't get the return on investment that a lot of the bigger enterprise technologies have. Now that seems to maybe be slowly changing with a lot of investment coming into the industry and legal technology starting to be a bigger business. So will you see somebody like a Microsoft or or even an Oracle increasingly come into this space, I think you could see it, but that's what I've been told in the past. Yeah, I, I was gonna say something kind of similar to that because I, over the years, Microsoft has kind of 
come and gone in legal. I mean, uh, there was a, uh, what, maybe five years ago, or maybe longer than that, even they had a, they did have a big dedicated whole union around legal and a big push in legal. And then it just kind of dissipated. And the only ex real reason I ever heard was that it, it just wasn't worth it for them to put the money into putting all that effort into legal when law firms were buying their product anyway. I mean, their, their core product. Uh, and and they, they did sort of didn't have to make a special push into it. Uh, I mean, you know, in terms of Microsoft, I think the really interesting, uh, I think this acquisition last week of, of Nuance, uh, where uh, where until a year ago my wife was a lawyer and got rid of all her stock when she left. I'm sorry to say, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that move into medical uh, is really really interesting. That's I mean, a huge area, uh, and also voice recognition. I mean, Nuance, you know, is the tech that powers uh, Siri and, and pretty much all the, the voice recognition programs out there. Uh, so that's that has huge potential uh, for, for Microsoft and, and really for uh, any number of markets, I think. Certainly for the legal market, that's what caught my eye about that particular announcement this week. Um, that I think there's a lot of implications there for legal, even though they're focusing on medical right now. But the other thing I wanted to add was that when you started describing this at the start of um, this software at the very start of your piece here, Bob, um, it rang a bell and I had to do a little research. In 2018 at Legal Week, when I was talking to Justin Hectus, I wrote about this on Above the Law, he was the Chief Information Officer at Kiesel, Young and Logan. And he was talking about an initiative that they were doing at that law firm. And then halfway through the conversation when he and I were just talking about that product or what they were trying to do and corporate law departments in general, in the middle of the conversation, he said, and this has stuck with me, and I actually went back and talked to a bunch of people about it. He said, you know, what would be really cool, and there's just nothing out there like this, is a product for corporate legal departments so they can track what all the different law firms are doing, and they can control what's happening and know what's, hap you know, what's going on with the process. And I've just never seen anything quite like that. And I went back and talked to people, and I, was, I felt like if I wasn't at my case, and I... I I love legal tech, but I wouldn't say I have the most entrepreneurial spirit in terms of how to start a company. But I was like, that is a fantastic idea. And it sounds like you're t someone is doing exactly that now from what you're talking about. So it was super interesting to hear me, for me to hear that because it, I had to go back in time and figure out where I'd heard that idea and why it sounded so familiar. And it was from this conversation at Legal Week, which is another reason why Legal Week is so great because those conversations just gel <laughs> and stuff comes up, but super interesting yeah. that someone's actually doing it now. Yep. Um, and, uh, also, uh, interesting speaking of Kiesel, cause they were just in the news, uh, for uh, having hired, uh, Jeff Marple, who used to run legal ops at Liberty Mutual, uh, into their, their Kiesel propulsion labs, as they call it, uh, uh, recently. So that was an interesting move. Um, let's see what else, uh, Victoria, you had an interesting, uh, piece this week you want to talk about uh yeah um, last few weeks like it's um you know looking at analytics like you know most journalists do you seem like a lot of people are interested in interoperability and kind of how legal tech lacks that and kind of like as one a law from cio said legal tech is really just like an island they're not really connected you know maybe more so into like the broader software that you find in any office like Microsoft, but for the most part, they don't connect or they don't have an API that works um, together with other legal tech. 
And I was looking into, like, I remember reporting about years ago, Sally, the standardization initiative for legal. And just kind of looking into that launch, like in 2017, and how come we haven't really seen, like, you know, standards really grow or catch on in the market? And if their standards, wouldn't that have kind of spurred interoperability? And speaking to the organization, they said, yes, yeah, standards would really help with like, um, you know, if everyone described or um, detail things the same, well, describe things the same way in legal, it would help legal tech. And they said back in like late, um, what was it, early, late 2019 and early 2000, they uh, started working on, started discussing like creating a universal API for legal tech that will connect all legal tech that is Sally compliant to the single API so customers can just buy that legal tech and they can mix and match and put together legal tech from other platforms. They said they're still working on that because they haven't even, um, oh, thank you, Jasmine, for finding that article valuable. Um, but they said that they're still working on the standards so the API is still in construction. And speaking to some legal tech companies, they said, yeah, I remember hearing about that, but it kind of just like fizzled. Like they don't hear, um, that's not what clients are asking for. They're not ask, asking for standardization. Of course they want interoperability, but it's kind of like if my clients aren't asking for that, I'm not gonna take the time to make sure that we're connected and our um, software is coded to match like um, Sally's um, standardizations when that's announced. So thought it was kind of interesting. And it's just kind of like, you know, once they get these standards all together, Will legal tech companies um, jump on board with it? It pretty much sounds like, you know, they all agree standardization would be useful, but it has to be the clients that say that that's what they want for it to actually happen. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I think it's really, I thought it was interesting. I thought as interesting as the part about the API was, it was also interesting that, that Sally just hasn't gained more traction. Uh, interesting reading about that, especially couple of weeks after we, I think we talked here a couple of weeks ago about uh, this, this uh, think tank thing that Richard Stroman's formed to kind of look at uh, eliminating the billable hour eventually and how its integration with Sally and is sort of a key component of, of what they're talking about. And this idea of being able to come to uh, uh, agree on a common set of standards would be a way for uh, legal professionals to be able to price their services and, and budget their services more intelligently. So, uh, you know, I don't know, it, it, does this mean, if Sally's not catching on, does this mean uh, we're stuck We're stuck with the billable hour that much longer as well? But I don't know. It really has to be the clients, I think like, and of course, like I have you noted, like you had like big, um, I think, uh, was it Microsoft or big corporate legal departments? They said they were all for it in some um, big law firms, but it really like speaking to in some legal tech companies, the large ones, they kind of also said like, yeah, we're for this, but just like what are legal tech customers actually, well, what are um, legal tech companies actually hearing from the clients? It sounds like it's standardization isn't that leading thing that they want. I do think, you know, the legal tech companies that did say it would be very useful, but I just don't know if it's necessarily a priority for most clients yet. Mm. So. It, that it just re reminds me of um, something that I didn't get a chance to bring up last week, which is that I was just looking back up again. Um, Joshua Lennon uh, quoted something out of out of uh, Codex that uh, legal tech needs its own code of ethics and performance that ensure transparency and trust. And uh, you know that th that type of standardization would be one way to do that too. And and so would some type of of ethics code. Um, I, I hear people talking about it, but no one's really, I'm not seeing a lot of people moving in that direction. 
other than kind of developing universes of of um, of systems that work together, like uh, you know, it, with integrations that um, have integration partners. Yeah. I know. I know vendors who are involved with Sally, who I think started off very excited about this possibility of coming up with these standardized terms and definitions and, and um, codes, etc. And um, I think I do sense this sort of despondency. I mean, I really. I, I sort of. I'm quite. Pro, I think it's a great idea, but it's, I think that it's been going on for a long time. My, my, my worry is that they've starting to they've started to broaden out. You know, Sally, we've seen sort of they're just working on new things, and this is such a big thing that I think it takes utter focus. It's interesting, Victoria, that you're picking up on. You know, I think it, you're right. I think there's so much going on with people that it's not a priority. I think that that's a little bit short sighted because I think that it's one of those things that with some work it would save so much cost and effort and it would increase it would, it would increase our ability the ability to, to to apply meaningful analytics and you know the, it's a really short-sighted thing i think not to really engage but i think that they have to be laser vision on just this one there's such a big project and i think sally itself needs to be much you know my personal thought is that they need to really, really focus on what it is they're trying to achieve and keep it very narrow and just keep plugging away at it personally because it's such a big thing i don't know if I, I'm, I'm missing something and i yeah, but I do think it's so important and, and it's a shame that they're not making more headway. Yeah, I definitely think right. you have to see the standardizations that kind of like formalize first and then people can maybe say, okay, I see what this is. Maybe clients will say like, hey, this would actually help me for like my invoices or when I receive pitches, so I can really understand like this is what they're doing. All law firms, you might have 10 different law firms. They uh, maybe describe it differently, but it's the same thing that they're trying to get um, done. You know, maybe then, and then it makes sense to then go into like, if clients are saying this is useful, then I can see the legal tech company saying, okay, I'll actually work with you on an API, you know? So it's just kind of like without standardizations actually formalized, it's kind of like, okay, this is a great idea, but we need to see it like actualized. Type of thing. Right. By the way, Victoria, I thought you're your post on uh, clients wanting innovative firms, why don't they hire them? It was a really good post. And there's really a lot of uh, interesting stuff in there, particularly about sort of the, 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 the inability of both in-house counsel and outside lawyers to understand enough about technology to know what, A, what is innovative and, and B, what is even helpful. And it, it, you know, I recall, you know, when, when we, when I used to go to conferences in person, and I was particularly thinking of ILTA, uh, there would be all sorts of IT people there from law firms and vendors and, you know, corporations, but actual practicing lawyers were few and far between. And uh, I kept thinking to myself, you know, how, how can lawyers who are actually going to use some of this technology understand enough about it when they don't even when they send somebody else to go, you know, learn about it and then come back and tell them in languages that they probably don't take the time to understand to begin with. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely speaking to corporate legal departments, I'm hearing like it is, it is just kind of like education, like you have to take the time to like reach out to those um, tech providers and also do your own homework because you will kind of just get pitched kind of like the buzzwords and everything like that. So, you know, legal tech is really evolving very quickly. So I, I understand like why it is kind of hard to get a handle of it. So it's just kind of interesting. Will they take the time? Like, I think there's a, enough consultants out there that like you can find someone that could come in and, you know, 
discuss workflow and kind of discuss like this, um, you know, challenges and maybe discuss like strategies and they can help you understand like the market. So I think it will happen. Like some people just say lawyers, they just don't care about tech, but I don't know how like business is evolving, especially corporate legal departments, they'll have to get a handle of it or at least hire someone that will um, be able to kind of like translate it for them to understand like what's important what's actually like efficient and will help us. I thought there was one comment in your article, a quote in your article from, I guess it was an in-house counsel that said something like, well, all the firms give me the kind of the same standard answer about how great they are at technology when they really don't know have much of anything to offer and I thought about the old it reminded me of the old old Texas saying all hat no cattle right <laughs> uh yeah um which I think is actually another UK saying actually originally but uh um so I, I mean another reason to have uh, standards is so you can apply to have if you can have data standards you can apply better analytics uh, across the board and Nikki you've got a story on analytics this week Yes, I didn't write this story, but it caught my eye because it popped up in my Google search that I run for mentions of me. So well, at least somebody, yeah, at least somebody <laughs> named, at least somebody named Nicole write the story. So you're. <laughs> but I was I was quoted in the article, so that's what caught my eye. But um, uh, also I'm going to post a link to this. I recently did a LinkedIn um, poll about uh, to get people's sense of what types of AI software for legal they thought would be most impactful in the near future. And um, the poll results were, um, I, I, I included three, litigation analytics, legal research and contract analytics, because quite frankly, those are the ones that interest me the most. And I think they're the most standout categories. And interestingly, litigation analytics came in last. There were 683 votes. Um, litigation analytics got 21%, legal research 50%, and contract analytics 29%. So um, I thought that was interesting that legal research just, you know, uh, was way ahead compared to the others. Um, and litigation analytics, which I think is particularly useful, uh, came in last. And so when this, uh, just on the tail of that poll, when this article popped up, um, I thought it was really interesting and uh, that it focused on the litigation analytics, um, which I recently wrote about for the ABA Journal. But, what interested me was that, um, uh, first of all, just getting the perspectives from the different attorneys on the value of litigation analytics, but also the conclusion of the author, which was that, and I'll put a link to this in the chat as well, which was that it's litigation analytics are not really predictive analytics, um, according to the author, that they're just giving you past data. But I'm not quite sure, you know, I've often cover litigation analytics tools, um, including Lex Machina. I've talk, been talking to the Lex Machina guys since they first became Lex Machina long before they were acquired. And I mean, they, it is predictive analytics. You know, it's, it predicts, it helps, I think it helps you predict what's gonna happen in the future. It's not just looking into the past. It helps you understand that the judge has done this in the past and therefore you can predict you know, you can make the prediction that in, if you bring the, a particular type of procedural motion that in the past, the judge almost always denies that motion. So maybe you should use a different procedural mechanism to try to achieve that same goal because historically the judge seems to look more favorably on a different procedural mechanism. So it, it helps you develop strategy um, that is forward-looking. And even though the predictive analytics don't go so far as to say, this is what the judge will say, 
I think that's your job to make that decision. So I thought it was interesting the way that the author um, described the tool, because in my mind, I think of it quite differently than she did. But either way, I thought it was just a really interesting article, highlighted the value of this type of tool. And um, this, you know, and I think that it is, AI software really is the cutting edge and it's sort of the next stage of what you're gonna see with legal software. And um, it just, it, I just love it when it gets highlighted. And so that's for any right. number of reasons that article caught my eye. Right. And just to be clear, she she has a legal analytics company. I mean, she's the CEO of Trellis, which is a legal analytics company. So she's uh, she has a uh, dog in the race or whatever the expression is. But well, Which was another reason why I thought of the way that she yeah. didn't make that additional leap to show the value of it was interesting. I, I don't know why she concluded it. I, I, I mean, it's yeah. just interesting. I don't think there's anything wrong with, and I think it was a great article, but just yeah. that it, the forecasting remains a key goal for legal analytics companies and their users. I sort of right. think of it as forecasting, but. No, I think it is too. And I, I mean, it, I, I mean, I you understand it. You can't forecast with any scientific certainty about what a judge is going to do or how a judge is going to rule or whatever. But, you know, even apart from how a case is going to end up, it lets you forecast things like how long is a case likely to take or what is a case likely to cost or, you know, how, how the, the elements, how long before I get to, uh, uh, you know, finish through the discovery phase or get a, get a motion to dismiss ruled on or something. Uh, and again, it's not scientific. It, it, you can't predict with certainty, but it certainly helps you make much more informed decisions about that than you otherwise would be able to do. So, in that sense, well, it's predictive. All the things but, that you said, Bob, are, are you know so important in managing client expectations too. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, most of the time I've gotten in trouble with clients is because they like, well, why isn't this case over? You know, it's a simple case, you know, it's, well, you know, the judge is backlogged and now you've got analytics to say, well, yeah, I told you when we started, it would be X amount of time before this ruling came. Good point. I apologize, Molly, I interrupted you. No, no, it's the, the, um, the other part that just strikes me with this is that it's, it's, you know, looking, taking that look back and understanding patterns, uh, either confirms or debunks your gut instinct on things you know so my gut feeling is this judge does this well now you know and you can also like steve just said manage client expectations you know this is this is the this is who we're in front of this is his record this or her record and this is what you know we can expect with this type of case so uh you know that's incredibly valuable to me um in in developing strategy and and um communicating with clients and actually, as, as Lexus have expressed to me with one of their recent um, product re releases in this space, that, that this is something that often you'll have people, obviously you, you can't do it to the, to, to the scale potentially that, that AI can, or, but you'll have people doing this kind of research, right? And it just, what, it, what this does is it shaves a huge amount of time. And this is, I think, one of those areas where they've got a quite demonstrable ROI because they can measure, they can say, well, look, you know, this is the exercise that would be done and this is the, this is the type of process that they will go through and this is how long it takes, this, this takes so much less time to do an exercise that probably re realistically for, for high stakes litigation, you might be doing a similar sort of thing. Yeah, and to follow up on that point, I mean, it's, you know, in a lot of cases that kind of analysis couldn't be done historically because it costs too much to do it as compared to the value of the case. And so now it's, um, now it's cost cost effective, I guess. And to follow up on Molly's point, you know, one of the one of the beauties of this is it it enables you as a litigator to, to kind of understand what the judge already knows. 
right? I mean, I, I've struggled with this as a litigator when you're making an argument in front of a, a judge that you don't appear in front of a lot. How much does he or she know about this subject matter and how much do I need to educate them? And if and guessing wrong, you know, could, could make for a very long hearing as the judge was like, shut up, I already know that, you know, that's, that's not something fun to have happen to you. And now, you know, you know, you, you can, you can do the research and say, well, the judge has had, you know, 50 of these widget cases and has heard all the, all the substantive arguments. I don't need to spend 25 minutes educating him or her about the subject matter. It's just, you know, I, I'm a big believer like you guys are in, in litigation analytics, and I'm really surprised you know, at, the, at, the, at the results of that survey, I guess. I, I guess I'm surprised, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe well, that, the, yeah, I was going to say, we, we, we haven't gotten to uh, either Joe or Zach, and we're, we're out of time uh, this week, I, I, and uh, both of you had good topics. And I, Joe, I wonder maybe we should put your story top of the list next week or something, because it's something worth talking about. Uh, the, the SCOTUS opinion uh, on fair use and, and software coding and all that. That's and, good. Uh, I don't need to come up with a new one next then week. Then you don't have to come up with a new one for next week and, and, and you're good. Uh, and, and Zach, uh, you're going to come up with new ones anyway, I know, because you're just going to keep working all week. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. We can talk about it next week. But uh, we are out of time and I uh, want to respect everybody's time. So thank you so much, everyone. Thanks to all the uh, watchers and listeners out there and we will be back next week and uh talk about joe's story then see y'all thanks guys great, great weekend great weekend <laughs>